The Down in a Heap podcast from Rob C. is one of the only podcasts that I can stand to listen to. I'm Froth from the Thought Eater podcast, and I approve this message. In old school games, life is cheap. So don't be an old, bring your pole oil a rope and try not to go down in a heap. Hey everybody, welcome back to the Down in a Heap podcast. I'm your host Rob, podcasting to you live from beautiful northeast Minneapolis. Hanging out in my kitchen, waiting for my percolator to perk up some coffee. Um, and you heard there from Froth, from Thought Eater Podcast, Thought Eater Blog, and Mark from the Ten Keep Blog, uh, doing my theme song in kind of a hoppity Rankin Bass kind of song, sing song way. So thanks a lot, Mark. I appreciate it. Yesterday turned out to be a day of rest. I did try to record with friends. My friend Keith and I hopped on Zoom and had a little conversation. And Keith thought he was recording our conversation, but uh, I don't know where the recording ended up, and he's still searching for it. So maybe it'll be a lost episode at some point. Um, but I'm back today to answer some, or play some calls, and respond to them. So, let's go. Welcome to the penthouse, Thunder. Hey Rob, it's Rich. Uh, still trying to figure out all this uh, this recordings thing and how to get uh, people messages. So I had forgotten that I wanted to call in about the D30, but Jason just called about it and reminded me about it. So I did the D30 thing uh, with my group, except what I did was um, either the players had it or I had it. And if the players had it, they could use it for any role, any role. And there were times where I was like, no, that's bullshit, you can't use it for that role. Uh, but they, they were pushing their luck, right? So. Um, it was a really, it was really tense, right? Because the players would be like, oh, I think I should use the D30 on this roll. Do I use the D30? If I use the D30, Rich gets the D30 back. And it was, it was cool because it created this moment of tension. And then I held the D30. And honestly, most of the time I forgot about it until someone said, oh, he's got the D30. And I was like, that's right. Now I'm going to roll it. <laughs> if I remember right though, uh, the D30 never served me well. I used it for saving throws and stuff like that. Maybe every once in a while it's an advantage, but I always roll, rolled below what I needed um, or what justified using the D30. So uh, yeah, not as uh, helpful to me, uh, more as something exciting in the game for the players. And that was Rich from the Cockatrice Nuggets podcast talking about the D30 rule that uh, Jeff Reince and maybe other people, I don't know the exact origin, but that's, I think, the, the first place I ran across it, being able to sub a D30 for any die roll that you make in the game. But Rich has a cool twist on it where it's almost like you have a physical D30 at the table, and the I'm assuming the players would start out with it in the session, but as soon as they use it, then it hops over the DM screen and is in the hands of the referee. And once they use it, it flips back to the players. Um, I think that's a interesting mechanism for utilizing this rule because it does, as, as Rich points out, the, the players aren't going to really use it uh, f for just a 
kind of meaningless. Well, they'd probably never use it for a meaningless kind of thing, but, but it gives them pause because they know that it puts it back in the hands of the referee. Now, it probably thereby gives the referee more rolls of the D30 in any given game session, which might uh, tilt the game towards uh, a more, I don't know, I don't know what kind of feel it would give, but it sounds like it, uh, Rich's group had a good time using this, so I guess that's the bottom line, right? But thanks for sharing that uh, that twist on the rule, Rich. Uh, and he's got another call. Hey, Rob, this is Rich. I was just thinking about your, um, like, generations of OSR you were kind of talking about. And I think, like, since you related it to music, it, like, related to music straight to me. So it kind of uh, reminded me of, like, first wave of ska. So, like, the original Osric era is, like, the first wave of OSR, right? And then the second wave are those that were inspired by that, like, um, Lamentations, when that came out and, like, started evolving on it. So that's the, the evolution of it. And then third wave would be maybe the place we're in or just the place after or just the place before we're in. So like where these are the people who are inspired by the people inspired by OSR, right? So this is when it starts changing and manipulating past what Lamentations did because it did very little to change it. And now I think we're in the fourth wave of OSR, which is just completely new and different where we're getting into the odd and Karen and all these others. Yeah, it is a lot like music to me where uh, the initial <clears throat> people that think up a new genre or, or just jamming out kind of come up with their own style and stuff of, of playing or singing kind of create this scene and other people are inspired by it uh, and, and through their own kind of take on it and it just that just keeps snowballing and changing as the snowball picks up different <laughs> things from the ground as it rolls along and it gets bigger and bigger and bigger and that's kind of yeah how the OSR scene is too and I think of it a little bit too how there are some games that are just strictly a retro clone they don't really do much to change the rules at all and and at sometimes especially early on it was a a means of creating a rule set to make adventures for a game that was out of print and uh, also not legally theirs to reference. They couldn't just say, hey, I'm making a game for Dungeons and Dragons because Wizards of the Coast would say, well, hey, this is our, that's our intellectual property. But when Stuart Marshall and Matt Finch made Osric and when Chris Gonerman made uh, Basic Fantasy and guys at Troll Lords made Castles and Crusades, they all kind of paved the way, and um, and so you have games like like OSE, which is a, rel a relatively new retro clone, but it is exactly that. The, the classic version of OSE is just BX, reformatted with different art and, and different uh, verbiage, but it, it's the exact same game, and that's what Gavin set out to do with it. And it's brought the game to a whole different audience. So if for no other reason, I think that's great. Uh, but there, yeah, the, there are other games that are closely inspired by the original games and the original OSR games as well. 
which are almost just like someone's house rules. And so it's uh, James Raggi's D&D, and it's Dan Proctor's D&D, and it's uh, uh, Matt Finch's D&D, and it's Rob's D&D, and Rich's D&D, and Colin's D&D, and Jason's, and on and on and on. It's, you're just, it's what I think people do when they're, they're playing with different game groups. It's like, oh, Keith's running the game tonight, and I know what game what rules Keith uses. Um, they might be a little different than what I use, but it's still largely the same game. Um, so, and the and the games that have come recently that have are really on the outer edges of that that have been inspired by all these other games and stuff. Like you mentioned, Into the Odd, Maze Rats, Nave, Cairn. I mean, Nave is, I think, a lot closer to an OSR game. I think it is pretty pretty compatible with uh, with most OSR, traditional OSR games. But all these games are really cool. I mean, I especially would love to try and play Into the Odd and and just see how long you can play it. Because it is such a rules light game i'm intrigued by the idea to see how far you can go i just discovered uh into the dungeon revisited which is um a much more in-depth like fantasy adventure game style with uh, using into the odd as its you know clear ins- uh, inspiration but it but it has a lot more D isms in it i mean there are, there's magic for instance you know like characters can cast spells and that looks really cool uh so yeah there's i mean there are very cool games out there that aren't osr but uh, i think if we want to have meaningful conversations about um about it and use that term it, it would be i think it would be more useful as a term if we had more of a concrete thing um but you know hey it, it's hurting cats it's a bunch of creative people uh in a very loose kind of uh <laughs> community so um i yeah it's it's fine with me i don't it doesn't really bother me that there's all these different ideas of what the osr is but from for those that are outside looking in it does seem kind of like a a hodgepodge mess, I'm sure, or, or just uh, um, confusing, and perhaps is why people have these misunderstandings and stuff. I don't know. Anyway, <laughs> we'll move along here, and I think um, I think Jason's called in with some comments about uh, the dungeon alphabet. Hey, Rob, that's a great pick. The ABCs of monsters. I've got. I might have all their ABC books. I know I have the Cthulhu book. Um, but yeah, great, great pick. Everybody should run out and get a copy of that. Highly, highly recommended. If only just to, like I say, just to charge your imagination, right? Even if you're not going to use it for the game, just flipping through it will, will help you as a DM, you know, stay creative and, and stoke those fires. So great, great pick. Keep up the great work. And yeah, it's not too overwhelming yet. Mind you, I'm home on convalescent leave, so... <laughs> It's easy for me to say that because at the moment I'm not doing a whole lot, but take care. 
Yeah, there are some books that I have on my shelf that I don't really use the material, you know, out of that much. But I page through them all the time because they do just get my brain working in a different way. Um, and I think that's really useful. And yeah, I, I maybe the the day off yesterday allows some people to catch up and stuff. But uh, there's so much good stuff coming out too from the other podcasters. I just listened yesterday to the interview that uh, Kevin over the Red Caps did with the Save for Half crew, Mike and Liz Stewart, Corbett and Jim Wampler, and you know they're they're always great to listen to. I love their podcast. Um, like Kevin, that was one of the first ones I listened to. But, um, but yeah, just the the stuff that Evil Jeff's put out, that uh, Taylor from Clerics War Ringmail, that Jason has put out from Nerds RPG Variety Cast, Pink Phantom, um, Daniel from Bandits Keep. It's all been great, and I've largely been able to keep up. There are um, a couple episodes uh, that I still need to in- listen to an interview and one of the call-in shows and stuff, but. Uh, yeah, and I've been I've been happy so far with uh, looking at the numbers, the listens for my episodes. It's it's been pretty steady and steadily. It's this month my listens have actually climbed a little bit from the usual fare. So it seems like it's caught on with uh, uh, a fair amount of people, and I hope that it's caught on with a few people that have discovered our various shows maybe from one another or for other outside areas and stuff but uh, yeah uh, hopefully we're getting the word out that that this is a cool scene and now jason has uh, a call about the ravenous zombie or zombies in general hey rob jason here calling you on the browser so on my phone so we'll see how that works i am home on wi-fi but i love well that's not true i have enjoyed zombies over the years. I got worn out on zombie movies about when Shaun of the Dead came out. But in these days, my preferred zombie is the traditional one, like you have in Kolchak, you know, but, or white zombie. But I think that's an interesting take on it, the one in Baramaze, and I do like to see different takes on monsters. So you're doing a great job. Keep up the great work. Talk to you soon. Hey, you sounded just fine on that uh, call, Jason. So, I don't know. I, I know there's been some kind of uh, uh, weird sound effects that some people have gotten when they've used the web browser and Anchor to call in other shows that I've heard. They get all kind of Max Headroomish and stuff. But uh, yeah, that sounded all right. And I'm glad that people are still kind of finding ways to get in touch with me either through my email at bigbalboni at gmail.com or sending me a, a soundbite uh, in a direct message through discord or still using the anchor app in and anchor web browser so that's great and i if you are having trouble please reach out to me and let me know and i'll try and figure out a way that would be an easier way for you to get in touch with me um whether that's setting up a speak pipe thing or or what i don't know or some other means just yeah reach out if you're having trouble uh getting in touch with me because i don't want to i don't want to shut anyone out from you know, chiming in and taking part, being part of the podcast. So, uh, but zombies, yeah, you bring up one of my favorite TV shows ever, The Night Stalker with Carl Kolshak, uh, Darren McGavin as Kolshak. And there is an episode, 
is it the second or third? It's one of the early TVs in the in the series, not the original Night Stalker or Night Strangler um, mystery movie kind of movie length, feature length kind of thing. These are the half hour TV show episodes, and the the zombie is in that is a little bit like a revenant, maybe, but but it's kind of a, a voodoo inspired zombie i think um it's raised from the dead to kind of take vengeance upon those that uh played a role in his death and the zombie is kind of a unstoppable force seems to have you know superhuman strength and uh is immune to you know you, they shoot it and stuff and it just keeps coming and um so it's it's clearly more than like your D and D two hit die shambler, um, and Kolchak has to use some kind of ritualistic magic to or you know rituals to defeat it, lighting candles, using salt, sewing up his lips, and all this stuff, and it's uh it's pretty creepy and and cool, and I, I like when there are these. That's one of the things I like about that show is. It uses a lot of folklore and mythological monsters and stuff um, that are projected into, well, the 1970s. And and it's just interesting to see how this investigative reporter tries to deal with it. Um, it's, yeah, very kind of cool monster hunter inspirational material. I, if you haven't checked it out i i highly recommend the show i love it and uh yeah now uh, there's i believe three calls i think from kevin from red caps jason from nerds rpg variety cast and the pink phantom from phantom thoughts chiming in on my my tuesday tidbits where i was saying uh, i can't hardly wait for domain play Hey Rob, Kevin calling in from the Red Cups podcast, just listening to your episode on domain play. Uh, I agree with a lot of what you're saying. One of the things I've seen recently, I don't remember what game, it was another, it may have been a house rule rather than a game, but somebody was using a system of, uh, when you get back to town, if you spend money in town on improving the town, uh, upgrading the buildings, uh, you know, just put, pumping money back into the town to improve the facilities there, you would get uh, bonus XP for doing so. And I thought that was an interesting system and a good way to get a little bit of domain play without having to really break the whole um, name level rules. Anyhow, talk to you later. Take care. Hey, Rob. Jason here. Great points about starting a base of operations and property. You definitely don't have to wait till you hit name level. I've seen this happen in a number of games. Uh, in Carl Rodriguez's uh, Broken Lands game, we did this. We weren't name level and we start, you know, we had a gang and of course we were playing non-humans because I, I was using the Orcs with our supplement. But, you know, we had started a base of operations and we're running gangs and stuff. And even in the recent game that BJ Boyd's running using OSE for Keep of the Borderlands or I, I think that's, anyway, whatever module he's running, you, you know, they've got a bunch of gold because it. You know, it's like kitty D&D, so it doesn't use training like AD&D, like real D&D. So they have all this gold left over. And so they're looking at buying a tavern or something. And 
and having a base of operations there. I'm all for it. I I, I agree. Don't just take it away from them willy nilly because that's just punitive. But I I personally would leave attracting the hirelings and attracting henchmen and things or would anyway attracting followers. Sorry, I, I would leave that until name level. But definitely they could get started ahead of time if they have the money. You know, after training and stuff, I don't see any reason they shouldn't be able to do that kind of stuff. So, and and I think just stripping out, saying, "Oh, you get too much treasure," you, you know, you're if you're playing an old module, give them all the treasure in the module and see what they do with it. You know, let the players play. Who knows? Something interesting might come out of it. So, or if nothing else, they'll buy a bunch of fancy clothes to wear because they have nothing else to do with their money. So, either way, yep, I'm with you 100 percent on this one. So, great job. I'll talk to you soon. Hey, Rob. The Pink Phantom here. I was listening to your episode about the stages of an adventuring party and the domain game and, you know, how it would be okay for the domain game to kick in earlier if they were interested. I've always wondered if it would be, you know, what would it be like if the domain game just sort of kicked in? That is, they come into an area where there's a lot of people looking for some vast treasure hoard or something and they stumble onto it and realize that there's no way they can carry it all out and there's all these powerful factions that want it and now they're going to have to deal with a different kind of danger if they want to keep what they found and you know it would be in a location like a cave or mines or a castle or something that they could turn into a keep but if they tried to do it immediately right away people would probably team up and come take it away from them because they're just first, second level, whatever. Hey, thanks for the calls, guys. Lots of good thoughts there on early domain play and domain play in general. Kevin brings up the idea of like getting experience points for spending gold for improvements in the local settlement or uh, um, town, <laughs> whatever, and uh, base of operations. And that's cool. I, I've kind of done things like that um, as a kind of add-on to like a carousing system where you can spend gold in town whooping it up and you get experience points for it, but you roll on a table to see if there's some kind of uh, mishap that happens in your debauch or, or sometimes there's there could be like a boon or something that crops up from it too. Uh, but not every character... Uh, See, it, that doesn't seem appropriate for some characters, like if you got a paladin or something, or maybe even some clerics and things like that, or, or any kind of more subdued, straight, narrow kind of uh, general do-gooder <laughs> in, your, in, your, uh, in your party. So I've, I have allowed characters to just think, do things like, well, I'm going to start constructing a shrine here. And if they when they're pouring gold into it, yeah, that that's kind of their means of carousing. And I just had a, a slightly lower return on investment. So if you were doing the straight carousing where you're you're taking risks um, to spend your gold for experience points, you didn't. You got I think basically uh, one for one, starting at a hundred gold pieces or something. And I think for other things, like if you're constructing a shrine or if you're a magic user, just spending time studying your arcane tomes and doing research and stuff, I think I was giving uh, one experience point for every two pieces of gold starting at a hundred. So if you 
spent 100 gold pieces, you got 50 experience points, in addition to the experience points you got for getting the gold in the first place. So, yeah, that works great um, and can give the feel for domain play if you're in, if you're making investments in various things, you know, constructing a, a tower or, um, or outfitting the militia of the town or something, you know, with better equipment, whatever. I think that's cool. Jason, oh, of course, you got to get a little dig in there at the kitty D&D with no training. <laughs> uh, the the uh, big boys uh, all pay for training. <laughs> I like that. But yeah, um, what you bring up there with the Orcs of Thar campaign and gangs and, um, and giving the, uh, or using the treasure as outlined in adventures and stuff like that, don't don't pull punches with the treasure handed out and stuff. Uh, yeah, that's all good advice. I think it, it can be interesting to see what characters do with, like, if you roll a magic item that's, you know, seems to be outsized for their appropriate level or whatever, or if you are rolling up that piece of jewelry, jewelry they find it, oh my god, it's worth 15,000 gold pieces. Um, that can be really interesting to see what they do with their newfound swag. Um and, uh, yeah, and, uh, Pink Phantom, the really early domain play, I think is, is interesting. Like Birthright, I know in that game, you basically, uh, if you're playing with blooded characters and stuff, you can start out as a first level character having a domain, like an actual kingdom or duchy or whatever that you, your character is the heir of. And they had all these supplements kind of detailing these various kingdoms uh, from the viewpoint of a character that um, that controls it. Or you might have a character that's the head of a church at first level or head of a guild or have uh, magical sources that they can tap into and stuff. And that's all pretty cool. And, and outside of a Birthright campaign, I mean, I've thought about having a game, you know, I was inspired by the TV show Deadwood and thinking of prospecting and stuff and having this wild region where ha that has kind of a gold rush or something. And, uh, all these crazy adventurers are out panning for gold and staking claims to things. And what if the characters come across the mother load or, or just, a a, a, a source of gold or silver or whatever. Um, and they're trying to extract as much out of it, um, uh, while dealing with you know, rampaging monsters out in the wilderness and claim jumpers and, and, uh, um, bandits on their way back to town and, and all kinds of, uh, seedy civilians in the town trying to extract them from their go the gold from them and stuff, uh, with various, uh, schemes and services. So that could all be really fun. And, um, uh, and yeah, when the characters like clear out that bandit uh, stockade or something or cave, they very well might want to turn it into their own little personal bat cave. And I say, go for it. And I I really think with domain play and followers too, Jason, uh, it's fine to use the followers table when they reach name level and stuff. But in the game itself, if it makes sense, you know, if the characters save the village or 
do some extraordinary thing. They killed a giant or something and came back to town with the head of this huge you know, giant and a big bag of gold and they're throwing it around and stuff. They very well might have um, some of the people in town just say, hey, I want to tag along on your next adventure. And they just pick up followers like that. It just kind of comes naturally rather than recruiting henchmen or retainers and stuff like that. Maybe they just get propositioned by people that want to be part of the part of the group and stuff and uh, they see their success and want to want to ride the coattails so to speak so anyway good thoughts there on domain play and now we'll move on to the through the rest of the calls hey rob jason here i enjoyed wandering in the fungal forest with you i i think of course, that's an interesting uh, module, and I probably will check it out. No problem chucking them $3. But I, I think the important thing here in this episode isn't so much this particular module, although it does sound like something people should definitely check out, if nothing to else, and just to cherry-pick some things out of to plug into, other, into their own games, right? But the idea that there's so much free stuff out there. And I know we've kind of touched on this here and there in different podcasts, but you really could get into the OSR and play it without spending a dollar, you know, other than the power to power up your computer and all that, like you say, or the paper. And there, there's things out there. There's so many free modules and free things out there that it's really not, no cost prohibitive to this. People are freely giving and it's, it's really wonderful. You know, so many of the OSR products have free versions out there, whether it's OSC, whether it's Labyrinth Lord, whether it's, um, like, like you mentioned, Lamentations of Flame Princes, but so many of these have a free version of some sort or another, obviously the, you know, basic fantasy. Um, and it's such an accessible thing to get into this play style and play. And groups tend to be, very inviting, especially online groups tend to be very inviting. Um, and it's just one of those things that, yeah, I'm, I mean, I'm glad that we're doing this this month to get the word out because it's such a low barrier to entry. You're not buying three $50 books to, to have to play the game. You know what I mean? It, it, it's all right there. All you have to do is hop in an online community. They'll show you the ropes. You can download some stuff and you, you'll be dungeon mastering before you know it. Keep up the great work. Yeah, it is pretty amazing to think about all the different rules and adventures and just game material in general that's free now and what it would be like if this had if I had been 13 now and discovering gaming. It's uh yeah, I it kind of blows me away uh, because I was saving up, you know, to to buy things or waiting until my birthday to get an, a, a module or Christmas or something like that. And granted, there weren't nearly as many releases then either. It was just TSR and Judges Guild and um, Chaosium and, you know, a few Flying Buffalo. I don't know. There, there near, wasn't nearly as much stuff um, as there is as now. But just the free stuff. I mean, the, the free stuff that Froth used to have on the... Uh, Hump Day Blogorama, um, it, and just, and the blogs too. I mean, just looking at, um, all the free maps and stuff that you can get and free, 
uh, ideas and random tables and all this stuff. Um, it's just, yeah, a cornucopia. And to be fair, a lot of the other big companies, you know, there's, there's an SRD, an on online SRD for Pathfinder and, and, uh, 5e D, D and stuff so you could play those games for free too i don't know if pathfinder has adventure paths that are free and stuff but they might and 5e I'm, I'm sure there's all kinds of free stuff for that too and and other games outside of you know, like fantasy adventure gaming and stuff um, i'm sure there's a lot of free stuff for a variety of games but it it's a i always find it a little bit dismaying when people talk about the OSR being full of gatekeepers and stuff like that. And it's like, well, gatekeepers, you can, <laughs> you can play for free. There's no bar to entry. And as you point out, I, there's just so many people that are so cool in this, in this scene and, um, uh, and giving and, uh, accepting and, and also full of opinions. And that's fine. I, I think it's fine to have an opinion about your play style and stuff. As long as you don't say other people are, you know, idiots for not agreeing with you or something, but it, it feels like the people that uh, do kind of denigrate the OSR are just fixated on a on a, a few of the people that rub them the wrong way and don't look beyond that to see the what it really is or what I f find it to be, uh, and I wish they'd dig a little deeper and not just like listen to third fourth hand information about it or the one crumb bomb they they come across uh just throw the baby out with the bathwater, so to speak so anyway thanks for the calls jason and jason has one more call about my don't be a dope episode hey rob just want to say enjoyed your episode yeah i i think maybe that's the definition between fantasy adventure gaming, the term some people are using now, and, uh, you, you know, based on the what the game was originally marked as, and what other people call role-playing, R-O-L-E playing, right? The, the idea just using, it's more of a board game kind of thing, and although that's not really fair to what you're saying, and I think more people do what you're saying than want to admit it, right? N not worried about the funny voices, but the idea of emulating behavior patterns, like you said, the haughty dwarf and all that. I, I think more people out there just play characters as avatars of themselves than may want to admit it, because I think the invoke thing is to assume the personality of the character. Now, I personally do like to assume the personality of the character. I think that can be a lot of fun to play other personalities. So I do enjoy doing that, but I also enjoy just, you know, a, a fun game where you're just doing the avatar of the character too so I, I think there's room in the hobby for both kinds of fun but a lot of the advice you gave in the dopey dope is really good stuff and most of it well you know I, I really can't disagree with it all so thank you for what you're doing keep up the great work and if you decide to take tomorrow off then you've earned a day of rest without a doubt take care oh yeah agreed there's definitely room for both styles of play for the assuming a persona and playing a role as in like your your character class role in the party and uh and playing like an avatar versus a persona that you adopt and and they're not even necessarily mutually exclusive it's not like you have to only do one or the other you can certainly interject a lot of character personality but still when 
the rubber hits the road, you're you're not crippling yourself um, intentionally by saying, "Oh, well, I better not, I better not uh, share my my good idea for how to overcome these bugbears um, with the rest of the party because my character has a has a six intelligence, so I'm just gonna say, "Yeah, Rogar the Barbarian wants to charge in." No, share your share your good idea because it's going to make the game better, I think. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean it's it is a a personal playstyle preference and I can have fun doing both, but I know I have more fun when everyone's trying their best to um play the game to the best of their ability and and those attributes will affect the game um because they affect the die rolls. So, eventually you know, it's going to manifest itself in some way, so you don't have to necessarily um, shoot yourself in the foot um, or put your foot in your mouth if you have a low charisma and and make a faux pas because you're getting a penalty on your reaction roll and you're getting a penalty on the loyalty of your retainers and stuff just because you're you have a kind of a creepy vibe or something. So um, you don't have to play that up necessarily. Just uh, yeah, whatever. I, I agree with what you're saying there, Jason, that you can yeah, play the play the game how you want to play it, right? Um so I guess that's it for today. We've gone through quite a few calls. Thanks to uh Mark for your theme song version, and thanks to Rich and Jason and Kevin and Pink Phantom and Oh, am I forgetting something? Well, if I forgot to list your name, thanks <laughs> thanks as well. And, you know, because uh, calls and comments and stuff are coming in through a variety of ways now, it's entirely possible that I saw something, listened to it, or saw it and didn't um, import it to Anchor and stuff. So I, if if you sent me something and you're not hearing it, let me know because I'm not deliberately... Uh, trying to um, filter out anything. I just may have overlooked something. Um, I'm an old man. Have pity. <laughs> All right, thanks for listening. Uh, tomorrow will be Supplement Sunday. Let's see what we got there. And until I talk to you again, thanks for listening. Don't go down in a heap.